I'm Jeff Cohen. Tova Mordechai grew up in a home imbued with Christianity. Her father was a minister and her mother an Egyptian Jew, although Tova didn't know this at the outset. Her journey from Christianity to Torah Judaism is remarkable, as the title of her autobiography, To Play With Fire, implies. Tova, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you very much, Jeff. It's really an honor to be interviewed by you. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you being here, Tova. And just from the introduction, the way I was describing your parents, it tells me that before we get to your story, we should get a little bit into the background of your parents. So can you tell me a little bit about their stories? Yes, for sure. My Jewish family actually originated in Spain, and we know that there was the expulsion in the 1490s, and then they went to Italy. They were there for a couple hundred years, and then they were expelled again. The Jews were expelled from Italy, and they hopped over to the west coast of Greece. So actually, my grandparents were both born in Corfu, but there was a blood libel in the 1890s, and they fled all the Jews, some of them to Istanbul and some to Egypt. And so both of my grandparents' families went to Egypt, and that's where my grandparents met, and there they were married. So my mom is the eldest of 10 children, and she was born there in Alexandria in Egypt. Uh, But how did my parents actually meet was during the Second World War. My father, a British boy, born and raised in a small village, actually, in the middle of England in Northamptonshire on a farm. He was just 16 when the Second World War broke out and he thought it would be an adventure to go to war. So he went and signed up and ended up uh, serving for the entire duration of the Second World War in artillery, in frontline combat. And for two and a half of those years, he was stationed in North Africa with uh, General Monty in the 8th Brigade. And they were fighting Rommel and the German army there. So when they were on leave, where did they go? Was either to Cairo or to Alexandria. And uh, actually, both of my Jewish grandparents there in Alexandria between the First and Second World Wars was actually a huge European community. And there was a very prestigious school run by the Salvation Army, and the headmaster was from Scotland. It was called the Scottish School. It was actually St Andrews. And they hired my grandmother to teach English there. What my grandmother didn't know was that they also hired the deputy headmistress to befriend the Jewish schoolteacher in an effort to convert her. And that's how the story begins, really. (laughs) Wow. And then your parents end up meeting, you said, while your father is on leave, and that's where he comes across your mother. How does that story actually unfold? My grandmother was teaching in the school for over 25 years. So there was a lot, a lot of pressure on her over these years to convert. Unfortunately, my grandmother succumbed to all of this pressure and then she converted to Christianity. And uh, my grandfather, who was quite religious, was so devastated that he actually sat Shiva. And my mom, my grandmother influenced my mother to do the same. So both my grandmother and my mother, my mother was almost 21 years old at the time, converted to Christianity. So where did they go to church services? Was the headmaster of the school during the war when the children went home in the evenings he opened the schoolrooms to the servicemen, the Christian boys, and they could 
pray and sing hymns together and strengthen themselves during these war years. So that's how my parents met, was in these church services. When they meet at these services, is your mom telling your father anything about her background, or she's just at that point identifying as Christian, and he's Christian, and that's the matchup? No. uh, My father said that everyone knew about the Jewish lady and her daughter. So um, my father always said that my grandmother was very strict about holding on to some kind of Jewish identity, but she believed in Christianity. So they get engaged, and where do they decide to start a family? My father's commander suggested that they would wait until the war ended because nobody knew what the outcome of the war would be before they progressed. They actually got engaged in Alexandria. My father promised my mom that when the war ended, he would send her a ticket to England where they could marry. But that took another three and a half years because they obviously went through Palestine and then into Europe. And um, my father was one of the Allied soldiers liberating the Bergen-Belsen camp. But he said that the American soldiers actually saw worse. They got there a few days ahead of the British soldiers, and they saw far worse than the British soldiers. But it was uh, had a very strong impact on my father, uh, seeing all of those atrocities during the war. So when my, um, he finally got back into England, it was actually in 1946, he sent my mum a ticket. In October of 1946, my mum boarded a boat. It took her six weeks to get to Southampton in England. And then in order to be able to marry my father in church, she needed to get baptised. And so my mum got baptised and then they were able to get married in church. And then I think like anyone that survived the war, there was a tinge of guilt and they needed to somehow bring meaning into the fact that they had survived and so many others and amazing people and good people did not survive. And I think my father felt very, very strongly about that. And that's when he decided that he wanted to bring goodness and kindness into the world. And he decided that he would become then a preacher. And he went and trained. And by the time my father was ordained and given his congregation in a small town in the middle of England called Loughborough in Leicestershire, Uh, There were no Jews and no synagogue there, but my parents had four children. That was actually their planned family. I came along quite a long time later. Anyway, I arrived. (laughs) So I introduced you at the beginning of the interview as Tova Mordechai, but I'm assuming this is not the name you were born with. So let's go into what your name was, where your early childhood started. Yes. So actually, my mum wasn't so happy about being pregnant again after she had four children, one at a time in three and a half years. So my father promised her, he told her, don't worry, this will be a boy. We will call his name Andrew, and he will be the big evangelist that the world is looking for. So you could see I was really quite a disappointment, and no one had a name (laughs) for me. Now, it so turned out that my Jewish grandmother actually passed away at the young age of only 46 in Egypt from cancer. And uh, so the younger of the four children was a, a girl, the older four was a girl, and my mom wanted to call my older sister after her mother, whose Jewish name was Tova, but my father insisted no. He said, we are in England and this is a foreign name. So we had to get something more English sounding. So my sister was called Margaret Grace. 
And then finally, when I pop along and hopes of Andrew are dashed, so my mother again insisted, this one will be after my mother. And again, my father insisted, no. So for some reason, my dear mom decides that Tonica will be the English way to say Tova. And then there's even worse to come because my father decided that if he, she's giving her mother's name, he has to give his mother's name, and her name was Violet. So I actually had the atrocious name of Tonica Violet, which was very difficult for me as a child growing up in England, but never mind. I got rid of it finally. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so I was born Tonica Violet Marlowe. In those early years, what's going on within your family, religious-wise? What kind of school are you going to? Just give me a real sense of the role that religion is playing in your life during those younger years. Yes. Well, because my dad was the preacher, and he was listed in the phone book as reverend, so you can imagine we had a very open home, and we always had all kinds of interesting individuals coming by, needed help and everything. So I grew up in a very, very open home. Also, we went to church almost every night of the week because there was either prayer meeting, youth groups, or so we went to church almost every every night of the week, twice on Saturdays and three times on Sundays. I went to very, very strict Christian schools. Uh, we had no television, no radio, no newspapers. Uh, we were very, very strict Protestant. Uh, so I went to a school where we started every day with hymns and prayers. I was known as the preacher's kid. I really, really grew up in a very, very Christian environment, very, very proud of my father, and because I was the baby by quite a lot of years, so I was a little bit spoiled in a certain way, but very, very close to my dad. And I think that this really had a heavy influence in the choices that I made, and I felt that my father was the most unbelievable person and my mom was amazing also. I mean, you know, she really, really never complained and really was very devoted to my father and his activities. And, and I want to emphasize this, that I feel that I couldn't have done what I did in my life and I couldn't be who I am if I wasn't born to the two parents that God gave me. You just brought up your mother. Was she saying anything about her background during your childhood? You're very, very involved in the church. Are you learning anything during your childhood about her background, your grandmother, and this Jewish side to your ancestry? Um, that's a really good question. Thank you for bringing it up. Actually, no. Um, my mom never spoke a word ever of anything Jewish. In fact, I didn't know the most basic things that even the most assimilated of Jews knows. Like, I didn't even know that the Jewish Sabbath started on Friday night and finished on Motsi Shabbos. I'd never heard of Shabbat candles. I didn't know about Pesach, Matzah, uh, Rosh Hashanah, Shofar, Yom Kippur, like absolutely nothing. I was about six or seven. We had an international convention in the church, and it was a big... A service in Nottingham and there were missionaries coming from all over the world and it was like roll call and so right at the end the head preacher got my mom to stand up and everybody clapped for Sister Sally the Jew. So when we got home I remember asking my mom, Mummy, what, why did Uncle Peter ask you to stand up and what's a Jew? And she told me, don't worry love, it's nothing bad. I said, but what is it? So she said, Listen, Mummy is a Christian. I married Daddy, and we are Christian. 
and Uncle Peter made a terrible mistake and I'm going to speak to him and tell him that he never must do that again and you need to just forget all about it. We are Christian. And that was it. So you accepted that answer. Maybe when you're a child, you just think, okay, this is what my mommy says. So I'll accept that kind of as factual. You weren't at an age where you wanted to explore what she was talking about and what Judaism might mean. You seemed like you were on this path of my life's going to be the church. And you even mentioned that your parents originally thought maybe you were going to be a boy and and that boy was going to grow up to be a world-renowned preacher. So is that influencing you at this point as you get older and think about what you're going to do with your life? I think what was really influencing me was my father and that he was really close to God and very devoted to God. And actually, when I was just 16, my father's friend, he actually was in the British Air Force during the war and he'd also visited in my grandmother's home. And he knew my father from the war years and my mom. And that's why I called him Uncle Peter, even though he was a really big evangelical, very prestigious preacher. He'd begun, when I was about 12, a theological college. He had a big church in the city of Nottingham, and he'd also begun a theological college to take in young people and train them how to work. So he'd watch me growing up, and when he opened the theological college, because I was the only one at home, I was kind of a little bit lonely, and so I would go in my long summer holidays to the college and volunteer, and it was a very exciting place for me, and I loved it. So when he suggested to my father, uh, when I was just 16, I should have been 18, obviously, to go to the college, but he felt that I was ready to begin my spiritual training, I was actually okay with it. I felt like this was my real opportunity to actually fulfill my dream of becoming close to God. And so you go through the program and you graduate and now you you get some kind of credential from the program to now begin a career. What happens after you finish the program? Um, Yeah, so well, actually, it was a very, very rigid program. The principal of the college believed that unless a person's spirit was broken, then they would never be of use to God. Um, So we were presented with a book of rules. The first rule was that we had to be obedient to those in authority over us. And we had to take a vow, which was called really a covenant. But we had to take a vow that we would be obedient to those in authority over us. And it didn't matter what they told us to do, no matter how embarrassing or humiliating, we had to instantly do it and without question. This was in order to break down a sense of dignity and self-respect and to humble us. We also had to eat anything that was put in front of us. It didn't matter if it was burned or moldy or to us personally distasteful, we had to eat it. That doesn't mean to say that the food was bad, that we had an amazing cook, but sometimes they would burn the food on purpose and we had to eat it. And this was in order to train us that food was not to derive pleasure from, but merely to satiate our hunger and to give us energy. We also had to fast a lot. We had to fast one day every week for 24 hours, and we were encouraged to fast two separate days. For the nine and a half years that I was in the college, I always fasted every Monday and Friday. And I was just a very innocent, sheltered little girl. And I truly believed that... If I endured all of this, then two things were going to happen to me. One, I was going to become a better person. I would become more spiritual. And if I was more spiritual, then I would be closer to God. 
And if I was closer to God, then I would be able to make a greater contribution to society. And I thought as a young girl that this was an awesome thing to do with my life. And I know it sounds strange, but I was actually very, very happy in the college. I was very focused and I was really excited about who I was going to become and where I was going to get to. So you said you were there for almost a decade. Mm -hmm. And then what happens after that? You come out of the program and what is your plan? Well, you see, there's a little bit before that. After four and a half years, so that's when I was ordained. And that's when I actually became a full-blown minister and a preacher myself. So what happens after the ordination is in the college, they decided what your calling was. They decided who would marry and who would not. And if they decided you would marry, then who you would marry. For me, they decided that I would never marry. So I was actually not even 21 years old when I was ordained. And I had to renew my vow in the beginning that I would be obedient. And then I vowed that I would stay with the church until I died. So the church alone would become my life. And I would not marry because that would distract from my calling and from the work that I was doing. I was working on the literature and writing articles and designing all the publications. So about six months after my ordination, then I got a letter from my mom and she said that her youngest brother, so he was coming to England on holiday. And my uncle Sam lived in Kirichmana. He wasn't that religious. He had very strong Jewish identity. He loved being Jewish. He loved Eretz Israel. But he didn't have too much patience with all the mitzvahs. But he was in England, and who knew if he ever would be in England again. So he wants to see her. And not only does he want to see her, but he wants to meet her children. So we, my mom explained to him that I live in a church. He will not come to the church, go into the church, but maybe we could meet in the gardens for um, 10, 15 minutes. He wouldn't disturb me for a long time, but please would it give him a little bit of time. Now, my uncle was a person of means. He was very successful. He was in a had his own accountancy business and he he would lived in Kiryachmona and he took care of most of the businesses in the north in the in the Golan Heights and everywhere. So he was very, very comfortable. So the principal of the college called me into his office and he said, I'm just warning you that your uncle just might offer you a ticket to Israel and you know what to say, don't you? Anyway, so my uncle arrives and we're sitting in the gardens. And when everybody had left us and we just alone, my uncle looked at me and he said, Tony, what are you doing here? What are you doing behind these high walls and wearing such dark clothes? And don't you know that God gave life to be lived and to be enjoyed? And he said, you know what? I'll send you a ticket to Israel. Why don't you come? <laughs> <laughs> and I told him, uncle, that's so kind of you. And it's so nice of you, but it's too late. I have given my life to God, and my life is no longer mine. I said, I cannot come to Israel. What was your uncle's response? Well, my uncle, being very Jewish, was not going to be put off with any of this nonsense. So he starts telling me everything he can think of about life in Eretz Israel. And he's telling me about kibbutzim. There was lots of it was in the early 1970s. But he said, please give yourself an opportunity to see what life is beyond these walls. Okay, so what was your response? 
right before he left, he said, you know, Tony, I see you're not going to come to Eretz Israel. But at least I want you to own something from Israel. I want to send you something. Think about anything at all that you would like, and I'm going to do my best to send it to you. Okay, I thought for a moment, and after a little bit, I said, you know what? I would like a mezuzah. I want one. And it arrived like about 10 days after my uncle left from my visit. And I remember I was sitting on my bed in my room in the church. And I took the little scroll out of its box. And, and I held it in my hand. And I thought, whoa, what are you supposed to do with it? My non-religious uncle went out and purchased a full-size kosher mezuzah, like a big mezuzah, and he left the back open so I could see the mezuzah scroll inside, and he drew a diagram so neatly as to which doorpost, how far up, at what angle, all the instructions of how to put the mezuzah on the door. That night, I quickly ran down to the cellars of the church, and I rummaged around, and I managed to find a hammer and some nails. I ran back up to my room, which I share with two non-Jews. I took my uncle's letter to make sure to do everything just perfectly, and I banged the mezuzah on my door in the church. And my uncle told me you're supposed to kiss it, so I kissed it. All of a sudden, I got so frightened, and I figured, oh, I got so excited with this little thing. I forgot to ask permission first. I remember standing there and looking at it and thinking, but what could be wrong with it? It's only a piece of wood. And it's only a piece of parchment. The only thing I could possibly have done wrong is that I forgot to ask first. So I take it down quickly and I run to find the principal and I figured for sure he will say yes. It's after about 11 o'clock at night when I find him. And I'm very excited. And I bounce up to him and I tell him, look, my uncle, and he's this big preacher, pre you know, everything. And I, I tell him, look, my uncle, he sent me a mezuzah. And it's so pretty, and it's from Israel, and can I please put it up? He didn't say anything. He put his hand out at arm's length, and I pop it in. And then he started to screw his nose up like as if it was rotten food or something. And he told me, just look at it, child. I said, I'm looking at it. What's wrong with it? So he told me, what's wrong with it? Tell me, what's nice about it? So I said, actually, what's nice about it is that my uncle sent it to me from Israel. Could I please put it up? He said, no. The Jews have this for superstitious reasons, and we don't believe in that kind of rubbish. He said, no, you cannot put it up. But look again at the divine providence. What came into my possession at this time in my life? I'm where I am today because of pure mercy and compassion from God. Because God read the deepest desire of my heart. And the deepest desire of my heart was that I wanted to connect with him. So here is this little kosher mezuzah, and here I am in a church. I have no idea I'm a Jew. I have no idea that there's such a thing as a Jewish soul, and I've got one. I'd never heard of all these things. I just, but here is a little kosher mezuzah. Each night when I lie, lay down to go to sleep, it's right next to my head. 
So what I don't understand is how having a mezuzah inspired you to leave this program that you clearly describe as a cult and begin to find your way to Judaism. It was then another three and a half years later after my uncle gave me the mezuzah that I actually walked past the synagogue and I don't know why. That was just a very spontaneous thing. I just went in and I sat at the back and I'd only been there a few moments and the rabbi went to the front of the shul to the Aaron Kodash, and he took out the Torah scroll. And what does he say? But Shema Israel, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. And the congregation repeats the words. And I remember standing there and thinking, well, that's really cute. All you have to do is copy what the rabbi says. And I remember standing there and thinking, even I could do that. But I only stayed a few moments because I was afraid that maybe someone from the church had seen me enter the synagogue or would see me leave. And I hurried back to the church. We had two services on Saturday, one at 12 noon and one at 7 in the evening. So we had a little bit of free time on Saturday mornings. So the next time that I wasn't on the roster that I needed to contribute on a weekend service, I snuck out to the synagogue and I made sure to get there at the time before because I wanted to see, did the rabbi take out the scroll as a one-time occurrence or does he do this every week? So I made sure to get there a little bit earlier than I'd gone there previously. And sure enough, the rabbi again took out the scroll and again he said, Shema, and this time I was ready and for the first time in my life, I acknowledged that there was one God. I had no idea at all what I'd said or even if I'd said the words properly. But again, it was a little bit of strength to my Jewish soul to like begin, you know, to strengthen that process of a return. And I really think that that was a really big part of the awakening of my neshama because I had no idea what I was saying. But... Every time that I wasn't on the weekend service to like preach or give a thought or something, then I would sneak out of the synagogue without anyone knowing. So the more I went, it awakened a longing in the very gut of my being just to be with Jews. And I remember I ran out of the synagogue and I went straight to the church and like knelt down at the altar and I was sobbing hysterically and begging God, please forgive me. And I don't know how I got so obsessed with Jews and, and I need to concentrate and be a good Christian minister. And this is my life and this is my way and help me. And I started to fast more and I would eat more moldy bread and more burnt food and all this stuff to try and disattach myself from the physical world and try to forget about Jews. But the fact was, it was too late because my little neshama had woken up and it had no intention of going back to sleep. And so I would sneak to the synagogue again. And one time I stayed in the synagogue too late. So I was late for our service back in the church. And the principal called me into his office and he asked me, where, where were you? And I was afraid to tell a lie. So I said, I was just walking past the synagogue and I went to have a look and and he became ballistic and he started to scream at me and he thumped his hand down on his desk and he said, you what? He said, I am telling you, child, you are a Gentile. 
God says you are a Gentile. The Bible says you are a Gentile. And you have to tell yourself every morning when you wake up three times, I'm a Gentile, I'm a Gentile, I'm a Gentile. And every night before you go to sleep, the very last thing on your mind will be, I am a Gentile. Do you understand? And he banned me from ever going to the synagogue again. We know how your story turned out, so we know that being banned from ever going to a synagogue did not work. What was it that ultimately connected you to Judaism? All I knew at that time was that I hadn't connected with God. And for the first time in my life, I questioned, is there really a God or have I just been brainwashed all of my life? Maybe I've been so heavily indoctrinated about hell. And if I don't believe in all of this stuff, I'm going to burn in hell for eternity, that I'm afraid not to believe it. And it had to have been my Jewish soul because the I have no explanation as to why, standing there in that church, holding my Bible to prepare a sermon, I would think that there has to be a God. And if there is a God, it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why on earth? And I just stood there and I said to myself, Abraham's God. That's the God I have to find. And from that moment on, no one knew, but when I had to kneel down in that church every day, I never, ever again prayed to the Christian God, only to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If only you could hear me now, please hear me. Help me to find you. Lead me to the path of truth. And eventually, through a leaflet, actually, that Lubavitch brought out, Pesach 1981, Missionaries, Christian missionaries brought them to the church. Missionaries that have their missionary work is to convert Jews. And they brought it to the church. And from that leaflet, I managed to get in touch with a rabbi secretly. It wasn't so easy, but eventually I found the courage. And I'm very, very grateful to the Abishter, to Hashem, that he gave me the courage to jump. And after I left the church... What I'm wanting to fully understand is how did you uncover the truth about your background? Because if you're thinking you're now going to be with a rabbi, you're going to start talking about conversion. And I would think the rabbi is going to now dig into your past to understand what kind of conversion you might need to do or not do based on your ancestry. And I would also want to know how are your parents reacting given this path that had been laid out for you and this strict program you have been in Now you've done this complete 180 going in a different direction. So I would love for you to talk about your parents' reaction and also what the conversion process was like once you found out the truth about your ancestry. I know that deep down my mom, first of all, she was like really shocked. I think my mom was frightened at first actually as to what my father would accuse her of secretly saying to me things, but she never said a word. So I think that she herself was totally shocked that, you know, one time I'm like totally devoted to the church and then I'm with Orthodox Judaism. And my father was devastated. He never, ever stopped crying. And he really blamed himself. And until the day he died, he felt that it was his fault because he allowed me to go to this overly strict college and it was too much for me and it just broke me. And secondly, I actually did not have to convert because I was able to get my mother's birth certificate, which was signed from the Rabbanut in Alexandria. But the base den, actually, in London, they wanted to interview me. 
And the family I stayed with said that Jews don't look for converts, so it could be that they would ask you to do a conversion and how do you feel about that? That was actually very difficult for me because the only tiny little invisible thread I had was that I knew that, you know, for sure that my mother was a Jew. And I thought that the rabbis accepted me as Jewish because my mom was a Jew. And they were warning me and telling me, you know, the rabbis probably won't be nice to because they're not looking for, you know, converts. But actually, the rabbis were unbelievable. There were three rabbis that had a meeting. They asked for me to go to the London Beit Din and to discuss my life and my case. And they were very, very kind to me. Anyway, in the end, they required of me to go to the mikvah just to help my soul in its return because of the extent of the tumor of the spiritual ungodliness that my soul had been exposed to. And how did you decide it was going to be Orthodox Judaism that was going to be the new home for you? I'll tell you, I had an interesting transition, Jeff, and that is because I wasn't looking to be religious at all. And it's like my search was for God. And therefore, in the beginning, I was just observing. I wasn't into Orthodox Judaism or Reform or Conservative or anything. I was just looking to connect with God. My first Shabbat, I'd been in the house a week, Orthodox Hasidic Jews. It was a Lubavitch family. So the little girls light candles from three. So this nice lady said she would put a candle out for me, and if I wanted to light it, it was fine. And if not, don't worry about it, because they understood everything was very new and strange, and there was no pressure. I should take my time. Anyway, I do light the candle and mumble-bumble my way through. I don't even understand what I'm saying. And after, she tells me, Good Shabbos. So I said, Oh, Good Shabbos. Well, is it all right if I take a bath and wash my hair now? (laughs) And she said, I'm so sorry. She'd asked me several times before, would you like to take a shower? But I felt like she invited me into their home. I'd help her with the kids. We'd get the house all ready. And when Shabbat came in, I'd take a nice hot bath. She said, I'm so sorry, but, you know, I asked you before, but we don't do these things on Shabbat. We do them before, we do them after Shabbat, but actually on Shabbat we don't. She said, I'm so sorry, but it's too late. I remember thinking, she is going to take me tomorrow to the synagogue looking like this. It's not my fault. So I decided to myself, she should have explained it better. I am still going to take a shower and wash my hair. Okay, I go stomping up the stairs, three flights, I get up there, open the door to my room, I'm really frustrated, I open the door, I'm just about to barge in because that's what you do when you're really frustrated. Jeff, I cannot explain, there was such a peace in that room. It was so thick, like you could touch it. And I literally jumped back and all I could say was, my God, God is here. And then I stood on the landing and I realized the entire house is so filled with this peace. But where did it come from? For the first time in my life, I connected to God in a way that a Jew needs to connect. And that's kind of how I came on the journey. 
Our listeners were really inspired by our story and are hearing that there are so many twists and turns that we can't get through in just one interview can for sure check out your book, To Play With Fire, One Woman's Remarkable Odyssey. But I want to close the interview by asking you one last question. How did your husband come into the picture and where did you settle down as a family? Actually, I'm in Sfat, in Israel. I met my husband here. My husband was actually raised in Sacramento in California. His journey started when he was just 15. He was actually raised in the Episcopalian Church, and he was a chief altar boy, and he used to carry the cross and light the candles. And after his confirmation, his parents asked him, what would he like for a present? And he said that he would like the entire Bible, not just the New Testament, and in modern English, in a a very readable version. So they bought him the Living Bible, and he started to read it from the beginning. And when his father gave it to him, his father said, this is the word of God. If you want to know what God says, it's all in this little book. So then when he gets to Shemot, the Exodus, it says, keep the seventh day holy. And he thinks, that's funny, everybody knows that Sunday is the first day of the week. And then he reads a bit more and it says, keep kosher. So he goes to the priest and he said, Father, do we believe in God? Yes, son. Is this the word of God? Yes, son. He said, well, look, this is what God says. Why don't we do it? So he said to himself that a Bible is a translation. And if he really wants to know what God says, then he's got to teach himself Hebrew and read the Bible in the original text. So that's what he did. And by the time he's 18, in his high school in Sacramento, they're calling him the guru. And he came here to Israel with a one-way ticket. He did not know anyone. He had no Jewish relatives in his family. And he came to Israel. So he was Mitgaya by Rabbi Avad Yosef, who took a very big interest in his case. And he went to Chapelles, which he was then, and then he went to Orsamer. And then he wanted to learn Kabbalah. So they told him, oh, you want to learn that stuff? And he came to Sfat. And so I ended up in a Chabad program in Sfat. And then someone heard about him and knew about me. It was a shidduch. Tova Mordechai, thank you for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you very, very much, Jeff, for inviting me. And it was truly an honor and God bless and much success with your program. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.